Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We all know what today is, right? It's Sunday, but it's no ordinary Sunday. It's Reformation Day, and you say, what in the world are you talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was on October the 31st, 1517, when an Augustinian monk who lived in what is now Germany prepared a piece of literature known as the 95 Theses, and he took that document and nailed it to the door of the castle church in the city of Wittenberg. There were two church buildings in that city, one for the royalty in the city and all those who waited on them in their residence and in their fields, but also there was another church for the common person. Luther regularly did what he did as a priest in that common person's church. But something happened to him that radically changed his life. He was, as I've mentioned, a priest. He was an Augustinian monk. He came into the priesthood through a crisis in his life, just like many people do. Not everyone has this dramatic an event in his or her life before coming to Christ. But people have to sense a need for that commitment. Luther was raised in a working class family. His father had pulled himself up by the bootstraps and had become a very successful miner. He not only did the mining himself, but he owned four different mines in the area where he and his family lived. He had to work from before daylight until after dark. He was always hardworking. But one of the things he envisioned for his son, Martin, was that Martin would not carry on the family business. Rather, he would have the opportunity to get a formal education, and particularly what his father wanted him to become. And in that day, you did what your daddy said if you knew what was good for you. And what he wanted him to become was a lawyer. He was traveling, that is Martin Luther, was traveling one day, a thunderstorm came up, and as he was traveling by cart, all of a sudden, a lightning bolt struck a tree right over where he was traveling down a pathway for carts. It hit a limb, fell, and the limb almost fell on him. If it had fallen on him, it would have injured him. It scared him to death. Not quite to death, but almost to death. But anyway, he fell to his knees, and he said to the saint, it was the patron saint of his city. He called out to the saint and he said her name and then said, I will go into the priesthood if you will spare me one more time. He went home, announced to his father that was what he was going to do. His father was unhappy with it. He could never seem to please his father, just like a lot of sons are in relationship to their earthly father. But nevertheless, he followed through. As I mentioned, he joined the Augustinian order. He was an excellent student. He had been aiming, as I said, toward law school and was 
on the track for that before this event occurred. He graduated from the university there in theology. He earned what we would call a PhD in theology. Among his duties in the monastery was that he was given the responsibility to teach aspiring priests and monks. And he taught the New Testament. And he read not from the Vulgate, which is the Latin version. He understood that as well. But he read from the original language, the language of Greek, the Greek New Testament. And as he was reading in the book of Romans, which he was teaching, interestingly, teaching to this set of aspiring monks slash priests, he read in Romans chapter 1 this statement. It's a quotation from the book of Habakkuk, that short three-chapter prophecy in our Bibles in the Old Testament. And there's a statement that says, The righteous shall live by faith. It had been his habit in his monkery that he would go to his cell, as they called them. And it was quite like a cell. It was a prison for him. It was symbolic, really, of what was going on in his heart. He was tormented, tormented by his sin. So much so that the father confessor, the man who led this monastery, told him, he said, Martin, I cannot hear any one of those, anybody else's confession except yours. You've got to accept the forgiveness of God. He would come sometimes, that is, the father confessor knocking on the door of Luther. Before he knocked on the door, he could hear him crying out to God for forgiveness. And then he would open sometimes, and sometimes he would be lying without clothes on, on the cold floor of that room or cell, if you will. Well, he came to know Christ. It was radical, the change which occurred. Shortly thereafter, Pope Leo X had sent one emissary of many, another priest by the name of Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, into that region around Wittenberg. And his assignment was to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. The way he that was done is that this man Tetzel, among others like himself, would tell people, if you will give money by buying indulgences, then your relatives who have preceded you in death, those relatives can get out of purgatory more quickly. This burned Luther up. And this is the little jingle that this man Tetzel would say after he would get the people frightened of the fires of hell and it would be something that would frighten you and me too if we thought about it, but there was no grace associated with it all. <clears throat> this is the thing that this man Tetzel would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was what he would sing. So that led him to write his 95 Theses, which really was a letter addressed to the archbishop in the region where he served. Luther was in that area serving as a Roman Catholic priest. And this man was named Albrecht. And he wrote it to him and it made its way later to the Pope. But at that time, it was just in the hands of Albrecht of Mainz and that area. And this is what happened. 
what happened was there was this immediate negative response, as you might surmise, because of the money that would be cut off from this endeavor that Tetzel and so many others were carrying out to get money to build the Basilica of Peter. And it got him in quite a bit of trouble. Reformation Day is a remembrance of that day. Now, I understand, and if you're an historian, you understand also that he was not the only one who was used by God. We have some prominent names like his and a man named John Calvin, another man named Ulrich Zwingli. There were lots of people who were involved in this and a lot of people whose names will never be heard in a history book that God used. But nevertheless, this movement began and it had five major principles. Before I mention those principles, many of you know them already. Before I mention them, I'm going to speak about something that Luther said. He said, the greatest treasury of the church is the gospel. And these five principles are directly tied to the gospel. The first of which was the first sola, sola gratia or gratia. And this means by grace alone. Of course, the Bible is full of references to the grace of God and how it's instrumental and essential, I might say, for our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. People are saved by grace alone. That's in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but we could go other places as well. Listen to what he wrote, Martin Luther, in relationship to the importance of grace. If the Pope would concede that God alone, by His grace, through Christ, justifies sinners, we would carry Him in our arms and would kiss His feet. He wasn't trying to be funny. He was trying to be truthful at that. See, Martin Luther didn't set out to create a movement, and it wasn't his movement anyway. It was a movement of the Spirit of God. He didn't set out to destroy the church. He sent out to reform it, to get it back, get it back to its roots, the roots of the gospel. The first principle of which is, if we are saved, we're saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. The second principle is sola fide, which means by faith alone, through faith alone. Say by grace, through faith alone, echoing what we just saw from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible talks about how God cannot be pleased as it relates to something happening to our sin by works of the law but the righteous live by faith. It's not only quoted by Paul in Romans 1, it's also quoted here. The righteous lives by faith, by grace through faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at enmity with God before we know Jesus. When we come to know Jesus, we come to know him because he shows his grace to us. And it's by grace alone that we 
are saved. This is a part of the gospel for sure. And it's by our exercising faith alone. Not works, but faith alone. The third sola is solus Christus, which means in Christ alone. We only can come to God through Christ because it was He who being God of very God before becoming one of us, it was He in becoming one of us, He said, I had to become one of you so that I could come and deliver you from your fear. And then in Hebrews 2 where that is stated, it goes on to say that that deliverance had to take place by his dying on the cross for you and for me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not many pathways to heaven. This is the mantra of our day in our culture. Well, as long as you're sincere and you have some higher power, you're going to get to be with God. Well, that's contrary to what the gospel of Christ tells us. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust him alone for our eternal life. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, the man. Jesus was God, no doubt. Paul was not in any quandary over the identity of Jesus. Read his works. But in 1 Timothy, he's trying to emphasize <clears throat> there's only one way that our sins can be dealt with and be done with, and that's by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. The fourth principle of the gospel, making it the greatest treasure that the church of Jesus has, is Sola Scriptura. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, through the Scripture. We don't have time to go into much detail here except to say that Jesus in the book of John talks to his critics, and he had lots of critics, of course, talked to his critics and he says, you believe that in the Scripture you have eternal life. And he didn't say they were wrong about that. But he says, these are the scriptures which speak of me. What he's saying in effect is, I am eternal life. And when you learn the scripture, you come to grips with who I am. And you want to be in sync with me. You want to trust in me alone for eternal life. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus, period, exclamation point, odd into infinity. This is our gospel. And it is the great treasure of the church of Jesus Christ. The last aspect is soli deo gloria. For the glory or to the glory of God. We could go many places. I'm just going to mention two places in the Bible. Beginning in the book of Isaiah 43, 7, the Bible says that we were created for his glory. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's why I was created the first time and certainly that's why I have been recreated in Christ. Therefore, if any woman or man is in Christ, that person is a new creation. God has to redeem us. He redeems us from death. 
the Bible says, in the future. But if you don't ever receive Christ when you leave this world, it'll be a rugged transition. You've been dead spiritually. You don't understand spiritual things. You don't have any change in your life from being self-centered. We entered this world dead on arrival, according to Ephesians chapter 2, spiritually. And we express that in our selfishness. But when we give our lives to Christ, He comes to indwell us. And when He comes to indwell us by His Spirit, He begins to transform us. We never reach perfection in this life, but we are moving more and more into Christ's likeness as we grow in our walk with the Lord. Would you agree with Luther when he says the church's greatest treasure is the gospel because of the things we've seen? By grace through faith in Christ alone, according to the scriptures, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the person of Christ may be fully equipped for every good work. Oh, I love the Bible. I hope you do. Because the Bible, it's not God. We know that. But it's the Word of God. And it has stood the test of time. People have tried to debunk the Bible. There are people who are doing it somewhere in this country and everywhere in the world trying to negate the Scripture. I remember reading how Voltaire, who was quite a philosopher, he was a Frenchman who lived in the French part of Switzerland. And he was a man who basically said, before I'm finished with my life, people will not believe this book. I picked up the Bible and said, they will not believe this book because I'm going to show people it's not a reliable book. Well, today, the Swiss Bible Society is housed in that house where he made that statement. Voltaire's nowhere to be seen, by the way. The Bible still is being used by God. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, to discern the thoughts and intentions of my heart and your heart. If you've ever read it with an open mind, you know exactly what I mean. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's something we are to embrace. Because as the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thank God for that. This morning, in the remaining time we have, we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. If you would look at John chapter 3, we're going to interrupt a conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was evidently an older man, and he was no ordinary Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over internal affairs that Rome allowed to function to take care of those matters pertaining to Jewish law, the Old Testament law of Moses. He was one of 70 men. And he came to visit Jesus by night. Some people think he came because he was afraid to come during the daytime because Jesus' reputation had already grown and he had heard some of his own contemporaries in the Sanhedrin grumbling and complaining about this man, saying, where does he get off? He's making claims that would seem to say 
he believes himself to be the Messiah. Well, Nicodemus comes. Maybe he was there at night simply because his days were so full. And maybe Jesus was only accessible at night. We don't know all the detail, but we know he comes by night. And Jesus hears him say, basically, what must I do to enter your kingdom or the kingdom of God? And what did he say? Unless you're born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that, and that's what Nicodemus asked too. He says, can a man when he is old go back into his mother's womb and be born again? I mean, he wasn't trying to be facetious. He's trying to figure it out. And Jesus went on to say, you've got to be born from above is really the idea because you're dead in your current life. And you're empty spiritually. You pursue spiritual things, but nothing satisfies you in the realm of spirituality. And the only thing that can fulfill you is that you be born not only as a human being, but born again by the Spirit and be a person who knows the Lord. Now look what Nicodemus says here in verse 9 as we pick it up in chapter 3. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, pause just a moment. Jesus is using the first person plural pronoun. We, we, us. Is he talking about the men who are his students? I don't think so. If we go further into the book of John, what we discover is the Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. The Spirit of God is speaking. He would also go on to say God is speaking. We'll find that further if you were to go further into the book of John. But God was bearing witness to the people as to the identity of Christ and how one can know God through Christ. Verse 12 says, If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me reiterate. Jesus was not a man who became God. Jesus was God from eternity past, who became a man. Make no mistake about that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Christ in His pre-incarnate being. He was the agent of creation. And He was God then. He was God when He came to earth. He is God now. He will be God forever. Co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. That's important for us to understand. So he is the one who who descended from heaven to become one of us as the Son of Man. Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's why Jesus was reading from Numbers chapter 4. And the children of Israel were given to grumbling and complaining about the food they ate, just about anything else they could think of. And they were complaining about this worthless food. What would that food have been, by the way? Manna, right? 
They got tired of it. They're complaining. And God said, I'm tired of it. And God sent serpents into the camp and they began to bite all the people. They were venomous snakes who found their way in there at the direction of God. And then Moses pleads on behalf of the people, Lord, save them, save them. And the Lord says, okay, get you some bronze and heat it up and fashion it into a stake, put it on a pole, put it in a high place and circulate word. All the people have to do is look at that. And if they look at it, they'll be healed. They'll be made well. Well, a lot of people heeded the advice, but other people blew it off. The absurdity of someone just looking at something that's made out of bronze. It looks sort of like a snake that may have bitten me. I'm going to be made well. They didn't even have the faith to do that. This is a picture really of our own salvation. Look at verse 15. Having said in 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you mean to say that if I look to Christ and look to him for healing in my spirit, not my body, but in my spirit, that he will make me well in my spirit and give me eternal life? Well, I'm, I'm saying it because it's in the scripture and I'm saying it on the basis of my own life in Christ. I remember very well when I was given the opportunity to give my life to Christ. I was still a child. And I listened intently when the pastor, really was an evangelist in our church, gave the gospel. He asked us, do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I did. I did after I heard the gospel message. I was drawn to Christ. And then he said, well, pray with me. And I did pray with him. And Christ came to live in my life. In our early service today, at least one adult woman came to Christ today. She prayed to receive Christ. She came up to me after I said, if you did that today, come talk to me. She came up and she said, I prayed that prayer and asked Jesus into my life. That could happen and probably will happen to more than one person here today if you're hearing what God says about the gospel. So this gospel is about verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we were to go to the book of Ephesians chapter three, and you may want to look, find that and follow along. Paul gives this beautiful prayer for the Ephesian believers. And his prayer is, Father, I pray that these people will understand the breadth of your love, the length of your love, the depth of your love, and the height of your love, the four dimensions of love. <clears throat> I'm not sure whether Paul had access to these words of Jesus. He probably was aware of them. And he at least was thinking about Christ when he was talking about the love of God being mediated to us who know Christ through what Jesus has done by the Spirit of God. So let's begin by looking at the breadth of love. And it's found here in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The world is at odds with God. 
In fact, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, if you love the world, the love of the Father cannot be in you. And then John goes on to describe the elements of the love of the world. And to simplify that, it's just a life that is centered on myself. That's what it is. I take myself as the beginning and ending point and I want things to go my way. I want to have what I want when I have it the way I want it. I want to win in every circumstance. I have to come out looking better than everyone else. I want people to be at my service and I want to have a life that's all about Mike Woods. That's what it means to love the world. Paul calls the world the domain of darkness in Colossians chapter one. When he talks about how Jesus came to deliver us when we were not followers of Jesus, we were dead spiritually. We were in need of forgiveness of our sin. Christ came and what he did when he came was this. Christ transferred us from the domain of darkness. Who reigns in the domain of darkness, by the way? The prince of the ruler of the air. Satan is the ruler of that world and we all began in it. We know that because of a conversation that Jesus had with some of the Pharisees, some of Nicodemus's cohorts. They were taking him to task about things he had been saying about himself, things which he was doing. They were accusing him of blasphemy. And he said, you are of your father, the devil. Now that took some courage on Jesus' part. Luther had courage. Nothing like Christ though. You are of your father, the devil. And they wanted to kill Christ. They wanted to get rid of him. They finally thought they had done that, but they played right into the hands of God's plan for our salvation so that the gospel could be in our reach too, for sure. The world is in a state of decay. It's in disarray, isn't it? Our world. We think about our own country. All the things that have happened in such a short time. In my lifetime, I've seen so many changes. And very few have been for good. We're in a state of deterioration. I'm not trying to talk gloom and doom here. It's reality. Open your eyes if you don't see it. It's all around us. The chaos, the disorder. It's in a state of decline and decay. And so God loved the world. The loves of God are the, the, of one kind. Love that is self-giving. Jesus is the embodiment of love. And the Bible says God is love. In 1 John 4, 8, throughout that book, it talks about the love of God and how it's centralized in the person of Christ as well. You may recall, many of you have learned 1 John 1, 8. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Notice he uses we. He didn't say you have an advocate. He says we. John the apostle. We, and that would include John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our advocate if we know him. 
What does he do in his advocacy for us? He pleads our case before the Father in the courtroom of God. And Zechariah chapter 3 talks about this. Read it at your leisure. And when the devil comes to accuse us as children of God, when we have trusted in Christ, we have by grace through faith trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, then that doesn't end the devil's effort to undo us. He hasn't been able to undo anyone totally, but he still attacks us and he accuses us of our sins when we sin. So what is Jesus doing meanwhile? Jesus is not sitting on his throne twiddling his thumbs. He lives to intercede for us. What does that mean? He pleads our case as our advocate. And what qualifies him for that? He is the propitiation for our sin. 1 John chapter 2. What does that mean? It means God had to have a price paid for our sin in order that we could know him. That price was the precious blood of a spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And who might he be? Jesus himself. And so there is our Lord, having lived the perfect life, having gone to the cross, having been punished for your sin and my sin, having been raised from the dead, having ascended to heaven, and now he lives to intercede for us. And he doesn't tire of that. He loves us so much. The breadth of the love of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the length of God's love. In this passage in 1 John 3, 16, He gave His only Son. Sometimes words that are small words, one-syllable words, we don't give a lot of attention to. But we need to perk up when we hear the word gave. He gave His only Son. Gave. This word was used outside the New Testament to describe the giving of gifts between people. Do you know that God the Father has given us the greatest gift? As Luther said, the greatest treasure of the church is the gospel. The greatest treasure for you and me is the person of the gospel, is Jesus. He's the best friend you'll ever have in your life. The Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend and a brother is born for adversity. The Bible actually describes Jesus as being the elder brother of those of us who know God as our Father through Him by faith and through grace. We are those kinds of people. And we have a brother who is born for adversity. He will not cut and run when you have trouble, when everybody else turns their back on you and doesn't seem like anyone really cares about you, even people in the church or people that you think should care for you who are believers. Look, Jesus never leaves us, never forsakes us. And he wants us to understand that. And the scripture says, 
The way I learned this, and many of you did too, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word begotten is really not in the Greek word. Monogenes is the word. And mono or mono means one. Genes means a kind. So one of a kind. And the more accurate translations translate it that way, just like the ESV says, God did not, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this, how did this error come into play? Here's how it came into play. There was a man named Jerome, and Jerome did the church a great service in that he translated into Latin the Bible. And it made it more accessible to people because people didn't know Hebrew and didn't know Greek, but Latin at that time of the fourth, fifth century, when he did that, they were more or less fluent. People who had some education, especially fluent in Latin. So when he came to this place, he did not use the right word. He used the word instead of unicus, which means one. He used unigeneratus, which means begotten. And he did it because of a bias in his theology, not based on what the Greek text said. And it's led people astray a lot when they look at this. But Jesus is the one of a kind son of God. There's no one else, else like him. And he has been given to us as an incredible gift. During World War I in Great Britain, there was a father and a son who to get some relief from all the pressures associated with that war. And the boy was still at home. He was a young child, probably 10 years old, just before becoming an adolescent. And constantly almost every evening after dinner, they would take a walk around the neighborhood for the exercise. And one day this boy began to notice flags in the windows along the route that they walked. And he noticed that many of the homes had these flags. And some of them even had stars on the flags. The flags were designed to help the people to remember those who were fighting for their freedom. And they were called service flags. The ones with stars on them, each star represented a member of their family who was at war to protect the freedom of Great Britain. And this boy was fascinated with that. And as he walked, he was thinking. The sun went down, beautifully arrayed sky. The stars were just becoming out. And the evening star just peeked over the horizon. And this is what this boy, as he tried to put together what his father had told him about the service flag's purpose, he said, God must have given his son for he has a star in his window. He did give his son. He sent him into an incredible battle, a battle that we can't even imagine in terms of the atrocities associated with that battle. When we come to Christ, we join up to be part of that battle team. The church is not a playground it's a war ground, somebody said. It's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. We know what it's like a little bit. We don't know much about it, really, compared to what Jesus endured. 
when he went to the cross and died for us, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sure he emphasized you because everyone else had forsaken Christ. He was abandoned to that rugged cross. He was spread eagled between heaven and earth. He was not accepted in either place. He was rejected on earth. And because he had to become sin on our behalf and God the Father himself made him that sin in order to secure our salvation. Remember, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's what Christ did for us. And what did he do? He paid the price for our sin. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can come to God and know God as Father. Thank the Lord that He didn't require Jesus to stay in that state indefinitely. But it was way long enough, enough to pay for every sin when, in a sense, Christ went to hell for us. He didn't actually go there, but He experienced separation from God for the first time in His total existence. We have no clue. That's love's length. He gave His only Son. Love's breadth. He loved the world when the world was at odds with Him. Friendship with the world, the Bible says in the book of James chapter 4, is enmity to God. And we are part of that world before we come to Christ. Here's the third thing we want to look at. Love's depth. Talks about His love extends to the perishing. All of us are perishing without Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says, without exception. You might say, well, I'm not a bad sinner. I don't do too many things wrong. Please let me tell you what the Bible says about that. I don't mean to be offensive, but the gospel has an offensive side to it. The Bible says, if I commit one sin, one, break one of the Ten Commandments, I'm guilty of having broken them all. Because the standard that God establishes for admission into His family and eventually into heaven is perfection. That rules all of us out, doesn't it? Were it not for whom? Jesus, who became one of us, He lived a perfect life. And He was the perfect substitute for us. Years ago, a man by the name of Bennett Cerf was part of a roundtable discussion it was aired nationally on one of the affiliates in radio at that time. Every week it was called Conversations, and it was a conversation between learned people, people who were up on what was going on in the world and able to give an opinion. And the moderator would give a question, and then for the hour they talked about it. Bennett Surf was one of the contestants. I don't, contestants, not really the right word, panelists. And the subject for the, this particular program was, what are you afraid of most? And everyone had a lot to say about that, but he was curiously quiet. In fact, he used to be, most of the time, he was the most talkative one, but he had nothing to say until the moderator, as the show was coming to an end, the conversations program. He said, Bennett, what are you afraid of most of all? He said, I'm afraid I will never be loved. There probably is someone in this room who fits that description. I'm not sure I'll ever be loved. Well, let me tell you, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants to love you. And we keep him at arm's length because we don't really trust him. And we know we have to trust him for who he is and what he has done for us. In fact, rather than trusting him, many of us run from him. There was a man named Francis Thompson. He was a British man. He was a man who was very brilliant, but he, as a young man, became an opium addict. And his addiction was not illegal. It was openly trafficked on the streets of London. But he was a gifted poet. He wrote poets. He would submit poets to the Times of London newspaper, and he'd get compensation for it. Here's one which he wrote. It's called The Hound of Heaven. I don't have time to read it. I'm just going to read about 15 lines of it. This is his own testimony, really. He said, I fled him, capital H, down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, up visited hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All, the, all things betray you who betray me. And as the story went, this man came to know Christ. He couldn't outrun God. Are you running away from the Lord today? Are you saying, I'm going to give my life to Christ someday, but not now? Have you been doing that? I'm sure there's more than one person in the room who finds yourself in that situation. But the cross of Jesus Christ shows God's infinite love, the price of which was of infinite pain to overcome our sin and the infinite distance that exists between us before we know Christ and Christ. It might as well be two billion miles away. It's more far than that because it's a distance that's created by our refusal to trust in Christ alone. It's a barrier that the love of God will not cross. It's a barrier that only Christ can bridge. This is why he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, namely what I have done. I want to talk about love's height now as we finish up and it's found in this verse again. Look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The height of is eternal life as over against eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about how eternal destruction, those two words don't even go together. If, if it's destroyed, it's gone, right? It's no mas. But this is a destruction that is in hell, separated from God forever. But Christ offers us himself. He is the resurrection and the life. It's eternal life. He offers us something now. We will have eternal life. He gives it to us now. We won't have it. He doesn't say we will have it. We have it. And once we have eternal life, it's permanent according to the Bible. Life 
when we receive Christ in our lives, having confessed our sins, and we say, we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. We confess that our mouths that Jesus is Lord, which means we say, I give you control of my life, Jesus. When that happens, a life that is ragged around the edges and at the core is a life that is full. I had a conversation with some of the people in the community group I'm a part of last week and they shared a little bit about what they experienced after coming to Christ. And to a person, they all said, there was a sense of relief when I trusted Christ. I was relieved of a heavy weight that I was carrying. Do any of you have that heavy weight on your heart today? Do you know it's one step to Christ, a step of humility, where you say, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Would you forgive me, Lord? Would you give me eternal life? I don't deserve it, Lord. I'm a sinner, but I want to give my life to you. I believe, Lord, what you say in your word, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you bow your head? Do you find yourself in that situation on this Reformation Day where you're hungry for an end of the life that is so bitter? And you believe, or want to believe at least, that Christ is the one who brings an end to that. Listen to what Jesus says. Imagine His saying this to you. Come to me if you are weary and burdened and submit to me and you will find rest for your soul. Do you need rest today? Why don't you open your heart to Christ today and just say a prayer like this to Jesus from your heart sincerely. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. Lord, I'm tired of trying to run my own life. I want to turn my life not just partly over. I want to turn my life fully over to you. I want to confess you as Lord with my mouth. And I also want to believe in my heart that you are alive. You've been raised from the dead. Would you please forgive me and come to live in my life, Jesus? Thank you. Help me to follow you daily for the rest of this life on earth. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.